Greetings, dear listeners. We have another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. I'm Jonah Goldberg, and this episode is brought to you by Untuck It. This is a bittersweet episode for me because while it is probably not his last time on this podcast, it is probably his last time on this podcast as my boss. Uh, Was that the sweet part or the bitter part? I, I leave that for the listeners today. <laughs> um, I, it's a study case of ambiguity. Um, Arthur Brooks, the president of the American Enterprise Institute and the guy who brought me back here from my exile, is here in the studio. And you are you are you were ruling with an iron fist for how much longer? I am ruling <laughs> through June thirtieth, twenty nineteen. And have under, the, under my jack boot, this institution. Have we ordered all of the oxen for the sacrifice and the ritual handing over the ball and scepter? We have. And also, well, the, the commission of the bust actually is what I'm really paying a lot of attention okay. to. That's my main order of business for the last three and a half months of my reign. I think that's excellent. I've been thinking of a full body kind of statue. Well, I also think it needs to be, you know, the Ceausescu's were masters of this. The presidential palace, its front steps were larger than human beings could navigate comfortably, like the steps were just slightly right. too big. So it made you feel small and inadequate to the task. So I think the statue needs to be much larger than life and sort of make people feel uneasy. Well, even I'm kind in of absence. hoping to wind up better than the Ceausescu's did. So maybe that's not the best strategy. Uh, all, all I'm saying is if you want to command and control people, uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to win friends and command people. That's right. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, how to, you know, how to, how to, it's better to rule through fear than by love. No, I know that's not true because I've been looking, I've been reading your book, Love Your Enemies. That's right. Which comes out this week. Um, its title is Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. Contempt. Um, you said that with a little bit of contempt, Jonah. No, it's not. It's not that. It's just, I'll just, I'll, partly. It's just. It's. It's the mood I'm in. I. You know. I was at a Starbucks earlier, and I had to stab a guy in the forehead with a ballpoint pen. But it's been a kind of crazy ten days. Um, Congratulations, by the way. Oh, thank you. Phenomenal. Thank you. I this is. It. This is what we need. Uh, I, I hope Steve so. Hayes are putting together. Yeah. Gonna. You're gonna. I think you're gonna save conservatism. Um. Or at least give a voice to conservatism that – To a remnant a of conservatives, maybe. <laughs> as it were. <laughs> <laughs> and as David French recently noted on this podcast, remnants in the biblical sense both connote a small unit but also the opportunity for growth. And um, so that's sort of what we're hoping is that we can – You mean like a little tumor? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean like seeds for a new spring. Oh, that's what you meant. Um, but uh, – so – just some backstory. I got my start at AEI 20-something years ago working for a guy named Ben Wattenberg, who part of his professional beat was professional optimism. And sometimes he was very persuasive about it and he made some great points. He had a book called The Good News is the Bad News is Wrong. Um, there are a lot of people who have been in that space since then. My friend Ron Bailey, Greg Easterbrook have been writing about things, about things aren't as bad as people think. And then I wrote a book called Suicide of the West, which came at things from a different <laughs> different angle. Um, you are now in – you are not so much talking about the sort of the cornucopia aspects of why things are improving and the alleviation of poverty, which is part of your ballywick over the years. Mm -hmm. but Happiness is what I was mainly involved in as a social scientist. Right. Fact. But you're talking about how um, we don't actually have to get rid of the rotten people and that um, – <laughs> um, there is cause for optimism for the society, not just what it can consume. So mm -hmm. why don't why don't you sort of walk me through that? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm I'm one of these non-purge conservatives, mm -hmm. and the argument that I make in in although for the record, you train physically as if you're preparing for the purge, because yeah, you never know when it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> you always got to be ready. <laughs> the uh, I, I wrote I started the book in 2014. I've been president of AEI for 10 and a half years and every couple of years, every two, three years, I write a book that, that talks about where I think the mission of the institution is going, where I think, you know, those of us who care about dignity and, and potential for people, what we should be thinking about. And this one started in 2014. I was at this rally. I was at this uh, conservative rally in New Hampshire. It was a couple of years before the election and everybody on the schedule was running for president except me. And, you know, you remember in 2014, half of America was running for the, the Republican nomination yep. for president. So it was a big slate of people or it were going to run or might run or, you know, whatever. Anyway, I was the only one who's certainly not going to run. 
So I got there a little bit early, and I said, so "You were the chicken at the cattle show." Yeah, kind of. I was okay. the chicken at the cattle <laughs> show. Exactly. I was the butter sculpture at the cattle show. So, <clears throat> and I was, uh, I got there a little bit early to 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 listen, and just to you know, kind of get a beat on this. And they were all doing what politicians always do. They're just throwing raw stakes into the audience. Right. You know, t- basically two messages. You're right and the other side is evil. And I thought to myself, what can I say that will actually improve the situation? Because I don't got to get elected to anything. I'm president for life right. at AEI. I mean, it's a, I'm the, the dear leader. So, hmm. I, I put together a little module I was going to say in the middle of my speech. And, in, in, and right in the middle, I stopped and I said, now, look, folks, we all kind of agree on the things that we're talking about here, foreign policy and domestic policy and economics and all that. But there's a whole group of people who are not here because they don't agree with us and they're called progressives. And I want you to remember one thing. They're not stupid and they're not evil. They're just Americans who disagree with us. And I didn't think it was going to be an applause line. Mm -hmm. And this lady, she shouts out, I think they're stupid and evil. Now that moment I mean, it, she was trying to make a joke. She wasn't trying to hurt my feelings or anything. But here, here's what I thought of. And I, I thought it was pretty involuntary. My mind just involuntarily went to Seattle, which is where I grew up. You know, I'm the president of a free enterprise think tank, and most of my colleagues are conservatives. But my dad was a college professor and my mother was an artist in Seattle. So, Jonah, what do you think their politics were? I mean, it's like zero percent chance they weren't liberals. And indeed, my family was 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 pretty liberal, and so were my friends, and so were are a lot of my friends. And I thought to myself, that lady's insulting my family. And, and that reminded me of, you know, this is an old axiom that the mark of moral courage is not standing up to people on the other side who disagree with you. It's standing up to people with whom you agree on behalf of those with whom you disagree. Right. That's what, I mean, it doesn't mean you shouldn't stand up to people you disagree with. It just means it's not a mark of moral courage. Right. And, 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 and we've lost that in the United States entirely. The idea that we would stand up for people with whom we disagree because we believe in a competition of ideas, because we believe that that disagreement is the basis of our, of our excellence and our progress. And that started this project, Love Your Enemies. What can we actually do not to disagree less, but to disagree better? And it's like, this is a handbook for how to make a persuasive argument how to be happier, how to make other people happier, how to, how, to, how to rebuild a society that's not based on contempt, which is the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another person. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, it's where we can actually disagree in a way that shows proper respect, but still go hammer and tongs. And I believe it can be done because it has been done in the past. I think it's been trashed by 6 7% of the population that's profiting from the contempt and the bitter polarization. And uh, I want to fight back. And this is my attempt to fight back and help other people fight back too. Okay, so I want to ask the specifics of how you actually do that. But yeah. again, since now that you're heading out the door, I can ask blunter questions of you. <laughs> I still have one salary review left, Jonah. <laughs> <laughs> I've often told people, I think one of the things you have to understand is that while Arthur talks ecumenically and largely in the language of, I mean, it's very morally infused, but it, he doesn't talk in the language of religion. Arthur's actually a very religious guy. That's okay for me mm-hmm. to release to the public, right? <laughs> and, um, and actually, as a Christian, you're not supposed to keep that private. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sort of gets to my point. So one of the things that that I have always been convinced is part of your superpower about this. That it's something you can't fake. That you actually have to have to believe that you are doing God's work. I'm sure there are grifters who can fake it, but yeah. that's my point is you're not a grifter. <laughs> and the or my grift is so deep. And yes. so pathological, it's, so sociopathic at this point. It's right? the long, long con. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, most inconvenient long con ever because you have to go to mass all the time. <laughs> um, but uh, how much – can you just talk for a little bit about how – what the role of religion is in how you do – social science, how you do the public policy arguments, how much of it informs this book. I mean, because Love Your Enemies has a certain religious frisson to it, does it not? <laughs> well, well played, Jonah. I'm glad you picked that out of the hat. I mean, I realize that it, uh, I mean, it's it's the fifth chapter of the gospel according to St. Matthew, 44th verse, where, and he also it says the same thing in, in the gospel according to St. Luke, where he says, do good to those who do you harm. Love your enemies. I mean, it's it's the most incredibly subversive teaching from the New Testament, and it's explained by you know a lot of other uh, theologians, including Martin Luther King, who basically says when you love your enemies, you realize that they weren't your enemies 
all along. The Dalai Lama explains it by saying, it turns out you don't destroy your enemies by making them your friends. You destroy the illusion that they were your enemies. And, and this is a big point that I'm trying to get across. But this is this sort of warm-heartedness, this goodwill, the solidarity, this brotherhood. It really is infused in our work. One of the reasons that people like AEI and by the way, I'm not trying to get people to write big checks. I'm trying to get Jonah Goldberg to want to be here. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could be at any think tank in America making more money. The reason why you be at AEI is because we're the best think tank. We're the most morally founded think tank. We're the best community. We're going to consistently do the best research. And you can count on me not to say, raise your own salary, buddy. I mean, I can... That's I, my favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and, and the basic point is that AEI is a magic machine. And in... There are people all over the place. There are, there are uh, policy analysts and writers like Jonah Goldberg. There are staff people who do various finance and fundraising things. There are donors. There are members of Congress and the media who are all doing different things. And they want to do better for the world. They, they have really two values in common. They believe in the radical equality of human dignity and the limitlessness of human potential. And in their own little way, in your own little way in mine, you can't do it. You got to have a community. You got to have the machine to do it. And, and when Jonah puts in part of his career and a donor puts in $100,000 and a staff person puts in a whole bunch of time, all into the same machine, out the other end of the machine comes a share expression of our values that's actually tangibly going to help the world. That's the formula. I was a donor before I came to AEI. When I was a professor at Syracuse University, I was sending in a check for $5,000, which was a lot for me in those days because I believed in this place. When I came here, I believed in it more. And so it's that conviction of the of, of human dignity and human potential. We do it together. Every single person here is a donor. That's the, the donors of the donors, the scholars of the donors, the staff of the donors were a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to these moral propositions of human dignity and human potential. And, and you know, man, I've got tattoos all over my body about this practically in non-visible locations. And I'm telling you, it is um, – it gets me up in the morning. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel everybody in our community that are – that at every single level, whether they're, they're brand new at AEI or whether they've been at AEI for 35 or 40 years, which is the case of some of our senior staff – that they get to go home at night saying, and everything, not everything's perfect, but I did my job to fight for people who have less power than me on the basis of the principles that I know are true about this as a free enterprise and a basis of American leadership and the basis of the, of the, you know, of the, the competition of ideas with, with no boundaries on, on intellectual freedom. Man, that stuff is, that stuff is great. And, you know, I, I could do that for the rest of my life. I'll be involved with it yeah, for the rest of my life. Um, just so listeners know, he wasn't kidding about the uh, the body tattoos. There's this introductory video that all new staffers at AI have to watch, <laughs> and he's doing it's like a reenactment of the Cape Fear scene with Robert De Niro doing the the push up the chin up things, <laughs> and you can just see like him just getting pumped up with these body tats as he gets ready to do re regression analysis and stuff. It's really fascinating. Um, <laughs> it's, it took all my knuckles to write capitalism. <laughs> I'm have to put these have to put the fingers together so you can actually see the word. <laughs> um, so, all right, so back to loving your enemies. What are the concrete things that you think, whether they're pundits or politicians or just normal people, can do to siphon off some of the bile that is defining our our shared political life right now. Well, to begin with, a lot of us have forgotten that we're who are you know whether the pundits or policy analysts or politicians or something else that even doesn't start with a P. These they're they're in the to, to, to stay with the alliteration they're in the persuasion business, mm -hmm. but they've forgotten that a lot of people have forgotten that we're supposed to be persuading other people. These base locking exercises are ultimately going to be an exercise in futility, except in the very short run. Politics should be about persuasion ultimately and you never persuade people by insulting them. Nobody has ever been insulted into agreement in the history of mankind. And so I go through a lot of the arguments in this book that show – you know, there's a, a famous old paper in the social psychology literature on what's called the boomerang effect, which shows that – the, the odds are more than three to one if you are contemptuous in your arguments toward other people in an ideological dispute. The odds are more than three to one that they're going to harden their opposition right. to your point of view. You're going to make somebody who's more of an enemy. So if you're in the persuasion business, you know you have to get away from contempt. You actually have to get away from treating people with contempt even if you disagree with somebody's ideas. You have There are certain things that you have to do. For example, find the moral 
the the moral commonalities that you have with look you're there are always going to be people at the, the extreme fringes of right and left who are actually not working with something that could be construed as a moral commonality but most people by the way i count it 93% of americans have basic morals in common and when we make these arguments, we're simply coming at them from different directions. As a conservative, I have very strong views that the free enterprise system is the best way to lift people up out of poverty. But most liberals that I know want to lift people up out of poverty. Right. And so the best way to start any argument is, is to say, look, let's establish what we've got in common here. <laughs> we want to relieve poverty. We love kids. We want to help people who have less power, who are at the periphery of society. Let's look at people who are at the margins. Now, let's think about different ways that we can do it. I think my ways are better to get at your goals. Right. And that's a constructive way to start an argument that virtually will never treat somebody as if they were contemptuous, will not attack somebody's character, and as such, where you've got a fighting chance of actually making inroads with respect to persuasion. There's a whole the, – the book is – you know, 250 pages of of these facts, uh, the studies behind them, and the arguments on actually how people can be more persuasive. I'm not trying to make anybody less political than they are. I don't want people to agree. I'm not trying to achieve civility. Right. <laughs> and, and as a conservative, I want conservatives to continue to be conservative. I don't want them to become squishy and wet. I want them to be better conservatives, but I want them to have a fighting chance of convincing some liberals. Right. And, you know, hey, maybe maybe I'm wrong on something and some liberals can convince me. Yeah. Uh, so better means, but not different ends. No, on the contrary, because we share most ends. And again, you know, we're we're those of us who are in the public policy space. I mean, we're we're stuck on social media, and social media is a contempt machine. Yeah. And by by the way, let's define terms. Contempt is the, according to Schopenhauer, is the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another person. It's not anger. It's to say you are. It's not worth getting mad at you, Jonah. I'm just going to disregard what you have to say. I'm going to roll right. my eyes. Derisive humor, sarcasm, et cetera, dismissal. Is what it comes and and social media is the worst. Yeah. You know, they, there's a there's a, a great nonprofit called More in Common that they do public opinion polling about how people feel about the current climate of polarization. Ninety three percent. I cited this a minute ago. Ninety three percent of Americans hate how divided we've come as a country. The other seven percent are running the show. Yeah. The other seven percent are the ones who are most salient in politics at the highest executive level. Obviously. That we have people in media who are just dining out with these massive and lucrative contracts, people in social media who are getting big followings by polarizing us. This is not what I'm talking about. When you go on social media, when you go on Twitter, it's all 7% land. Yep. But that's not America. 93% of people don't want to hate their, their neighbors, even though they disagree. And they're looking for a way to not do that. It's time for us to fight back. Yeah. So this, this is, is a rebellion guide. This is part of my um, – it's not the only reason. Part of it, I just think it's fun, but it's part of my um, subversiveness in tweeting all my dog videos. Yeah. Because <laughs> it, yeah, it's amazing how it's like a molecule that can get right through the blood-brain barrier. Everyone likes dogs, you know, except right. for, the, of course, the cat people who are going to have to round up. But um, <laughs> no, but uh, – and it makes <clears> – <throat> it bothers people on the right and the left. You can tell it bothers the seven percenters that I'm doing it because they understand that – Mocking me for it makes them seem bitter and nasty. Like, who? Why are you getting so upset about a picture of a puppy? You know. <laughs> um, but um, and you're communicating with the other side, and that actually militates against the strategy of the seven percent. Look, if people are getting rich and powerful and famous by keeping people at with daggers drawn against each other, you're actually hurting that business model by making people listen to each other. See, the key thing is when I get people together, I've done this a bunch of times in my career, you get a liberal and a conservative who are just, you know, hardcore together. And you want them to talk to each other in a productive way. You you start by saying, I want you to tell each other about your children. Yeah. These are dog videos. Right. (laughs) I mean, this is, you tell each other about your kids because look, you both love your kids. You're both driven crazy by your teenagers. It's all the same problems. It's all the same joys. This is the reason, by the way, that, that human stories are so different than identity politics. And this is one of the key things I go into in the book. Identity politics is, in, is inherently polarizing because it's about the differences. It's here's how I am different than Jonah and Jonah is not one of us. That's how identity politics works. Right. Human stories are, are, are looking for the ways – for the things that we have in common with each other. And that's, and that's what we should be working for. That has much, much more power. It takes more skill. Takes more time, but leaders who are dedicated to doing that, they can win the day. And I think, by the way, I mean, I'm looking at the numbers. Ninety-three percent is a lot. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be a day of reckoning for the seven percent, and I want to be on the other side of that one. I want to bring a lot of people with me because it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah. I mean, I would argue 
um, also that one of the things that makes identity politics so poisonous is that it is, at its most fundamental level, dehumanizing, right? It basically says that all I need to know about somebody can be reduced to the color of their skin or their gender yeah. or whatever it is. It's a cardboard cutout. Right. And so there's a transitive property that once you know about, once you've established that white men or the pale penis people or whatever, because I know you like alliteration. Um, <laughs> so I'm writing that down. Uh, are evil, then you get to say, because this one person, you hold up this one person who's an example of the evil of an entire category of people. Right. And then you can... Uh, extrapolate that to all people who share these utterly arbitrary characteristics. And it's a way to turn people to whole classes of people into essentially allegorical stand-ins that drive a narrative of us versus them. Right. It becomes an avatar. But even worse, arguably, is the extent to which we reduce ourselves to a cardboard cutout yeah. with our identity politics. And the reason that that's bad is because this is what social scientists call de-individuation right. or dehumanization, where we basically say, I am demographic characteristic fill in the blank. When you do that, you basically pull out all of the human compassion and empathy that really fills out the human person, the, the human story, all the stuff that we have in common. You empty it. You void all the things that we have in common. Right. And in so doing, you actually – there's a lot of social science research that shows that when people identify with one particular demographic characteristic, they start to behave worse. Mm -hmm. They start to treat other people worse. They start they, – they give themselves permission to behave usually anonymously. This is the really interesting thing. There's a big correlation between identity politics and anonymity. Mm -hmm. And an anonymity is like, is like cancer for the political debate. You know, th this is also, by the way, an existential crisis for social media because people are figuring out because of anonymity and the way that people treat each other that they hate social media. These are, these are becoming companies that – that are uh, making – they're the for-profit companies that people will, will will use the most frequently but dislike the most. Right. Like, you know, used to talk about United Airlines or something. I don't like it, but, you know, I'm, all my miles are on that. Or, you know, Camel Cigarettes in my youth. It's like, I hate it. It's wrecking my health. It makes my mother sad, but I give them all my money. Right. Now these are social media companies. and so the, But the anonymity is becoming a big commercial threat. And they're going to have to sort this out. But it's also the reason that it's so incredibly unpleasant and people don't like it. And so it's funny. You know, you and I live in D.C., um, the Washington, D.C. area, and what we always complain about is traffic mm -hmm. and how you know, people are terrible on the roads. People are terrible to each other. The best way that you could actually make traffic better is put a, take a bumper sticker and put the back of everybody's car that has their name and their house of worship. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like you're not going to get flipped off by Mike Johnson from Our Lady of Sorrows. Right, it's right, right. unlikely. And, and, and the same thing is true with, with the way that we de-individuate ourselves, either literally on social media or, or figuratively by joining ourselves up to a simple demographic group. It's bad for people. It's bad for society. Yeah. So it's funny. Um, and I'm absolutely positive you know this stuff better than I do, but there are all those studies where they they videotape uh, married couples with the sound off and they just look at their faces and they can predict with a very high level of confidence which marriages are doomed by how many expressions of contempt. Yeah. Eye rolling. Eye rolling. Eye rolling, and rolling. That kind of, right. Or like right. when you like when you laugh at your wife or your husband's expense with a third party person, um, whether it's checking into a hotel or whatever, um, that is a sign of a real cancerous. That's that's contempt. Yeah, that is to say, that's dismissal. And the the guy who does that work is a guy named John Gottman. He's a psychologist at the University of Washington. He runs with his wife Julie the Gottman Marriage Laboratory, and he he can look at these videos with the sound turned off, and he can predict with ninety four percent accuracy which couple will be divorced within three years. Yeah. I mean, it's like a superpower. It's incredible yeah. that he can do this, and he literally is looking for eye rolling. Yeah, and he you know he I had him on my podcast uh, last season, and he talked about. I asked him to kind of go beyond – he's the world's leading expert in marital reconciliation. He says basically you, you want to stay married, learn how to fight contempt. Right. Contempt is a habit. You know, they're not – people are not trying to hurt each other. But if you don't want to be her first husband, then learn how to, to, to curb your contempt. And the way to do it is when you catch yourself about to express contempt, stop and express something else no matter what you feel. 
Yeah. And, you know, the, the Dalai Lama would say express warm heartedness in that breach. You know, the, the, the moment between stimulus and response is where you have mastery over yourself, where you can break your bad habits. You don't have to do that. Stop. See it as an opportunity. Express warm heartedness. And here's the, the thing that I actually go into in a lot of detail in the book. When you choose kindness, love, warm heartedness, respect instead of contempt, you know, it, 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 it's hard to do at first because it feels so disappointing, mm-hmm. especially when somebody treats you with contempt. You will be happier. Yeah. It will lower your stress. It'll lose. It'll, it'll lower your your norepinephrine, epinephrine, and, and 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 cortisol levels. Literally, you'll be a happier, healthier person if you choose a response that's not contempt. And you'll nobody ever says, you know, what a bummer. I wish I'd been more of a jerk. Right. This is just not a normal human thing to do. And it will become a better habit, and you'll live longer, and you'll be happier, and you'll be a catalyst for a better world. So it's funny. Um, you know, part of the argument um, I made in in my book was a big source of the problems we have in American life and Western life. Great book, by the way. Fantastic. Thank you. very. How many weeks were you in the bestseller list? I don't remember. You don't remember. Uh, You're four or something like that. It's had a nice long tail. It might've been exactly four. four. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Let's, let's go with 14. Um, But, um, you know, part of my argument is, is that um, a big problem we have with modern society is that for generations now, we teach people that the highest source of moral authority is their gut, right? Are their feelings, are their first instincts. Go with your gut. Go with your instincts. To your own self, be true, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there are good forms of being true to yourself, to be sure. But, you know, it's like when I get, in, get into arguments with people about populism, people will say to me, you just don't understand how angry people are. And I'll say, no, I understand how angry people are. How many of your best decisions were made when you were really, really angry? <laughs> what we, we call a hot hedonic state. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so how do you uh, – and, and if you I – mean, again, I'm not going to go too deep quoting you know, the New Testament to you. <laughs> but a big, That's cold in Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> but a big part of the argument of Christianity is, is, is turning away – from your baser instincts, right? It is turning – don't indulge your lower instincts because that's corrupting, yeah. right? And the whole point of a, of, a, of a religion properly understood, the whole point of ethics properly understood, the whole point of ideals is that they're a little harder, but that's what you're reaching for, yeah. right? How do, you, how do you reverse that in a culture that from Hollywood to pre-K tells people – um, if it feels good, do it. Go with your gut. Go with your instincts. The only person you, you know, I grew up listening to these public service commercials on local channel five in New York where the song was, was you're the most important person in the whole wide world. It's you <laughs> and you hardly even know you, right? I mean, and which I think is, I, I, I remember when I, I found the YouTube video for it because when I was working on the book and I sent it to John Padora at some text and I said, John, I just figured, I, I found the Fons et Origino of all of our problems in this little commercial. Um, it's the butterfly flapping its wings in Australia that leads to the El Nino. But, I mean, you know, the, re- the, the retreat of organized religion in public life, yeah. right? Um, which was one of these great restraints on your personal instincts and your the lesser, the lesser demons or lesser angels of your, our nature. With that gone, how do you actually – tell people that their first emotional response isn't necessarily the right one and that we shouldn't organize our politics around. <laughs> the the good news is that people actually know that. It, it is true. You know, they, if it feels good, do it, is the original lesson for useful idiots. Useful to who? Useful to your evolutionary biology. I mean, the whole idea of, of going with the impulse, of the biological imperative of trying to pass on your genes and express your emotions. I mean, that's an idiot show. Mm-hmm. And, and every parent knows that. There is not a, a decent parent in America or for that matter the world that's not teaching his or her kids to, to master him or herself. Right. This is basic parenting 101. Now, what, what militates against that? A lot of the popular culture militates against it, but also in particular, we have a, a moment in which we're, we reward politicians and leaders and, and people on television. We're rewarding it. This is largely a demand driven phenomenon, not a supply driven phenomenon. And demand-driven phenomena can be changed with social movements. 
you know, what we've seen all throughout history when we get these periods of enlightenment, when we, when we have periods of, of greater self-discipline, it's largely along these lines where people realize that there's greater dignity. Human dignity comes from being the master of yourself. There's a great saint, I think fourth century saint named Saint Irenaeus, who said the, the glory of God is a man fully alive. <laughs> and a man fully alive, or a woman fully alive for that matter, is a person who masters him or herself. That is to say, now, now to get into the, you know, the Tibetan Buddhism of it, that is to maximize the space between stimulus and response. Let's think about this on Twitter. You get stimulated when you're working at Twitter. Now, the problem is that we look at it so much that we're stimulating ourselves full time, which has the, the dopamine pathways in our brains are just lit up like a Christmas tree. And our tendency is to want to, to, to minimize this, the, the time between stimulus and response. But that is to not master ourselves. That is to not actually to be fully alive as a human. It's more like a slug that's stimulated with an electrode or something like that. So, and everybody can do this. We can do what our parents taught us to do. When your mother said, when you get angry, count to 10. That's that's maximizing the time between stimulus and response. And, right. and that's the kind of self-control that we need. It would be better if we had leaders that were doing it. But, but leaders, what we call leaders, particularly in political life, are just followers. Mm-hmm. They see a parade going down the street, a social parade going down the street. They jump in front of it and say, this, this parade needs a leader. Right. Social movement actually change the nature of the parade. You know, there, there have been a lot of times in, in, in American history, modern American history, ancient American history, as ancient as we get it, in, in which there was this, there, there were periods of dignity. And, and I think that we can, it doesn't sound like fun, maybe. I think it actually is. I think it's really, really empowering. And I think that we could be on the cusp of another. How do you do that without it being a religious movement because most of them have been various awakenings or whatnot in the Victoria era. There was part of it too. You know, people stopped drinking gin as much. Right. As Control your dopamine resi- receptors is not the kind of rallying cry that gets you know, <laughs> millions. Okay, okay. So I'm going to change that. Okay, I'm writing this down because you know it's like you blew my mind here, Jonah. <laughs> so the I think in American history the period that was really most interesting in changing the way that people became masters of themselves was not a religious movement. It had religious components to it. Had religious manifestations of it. But it was a self improvement movement between the Civil War and the First World War. The United States really became the great country that it is after the Civil War because of philanthropists like Andrew Carnegie and and not related, but the self-improvement writer, Dale Carnegie, mm-hmm. who basically said – Andrew Carnegie started 2,509 English-speaking libraries for the riffraff, the Goldbergs and the Brookses mm-hmm. to basically lift themselves up. That's the ultimate dignity is to earn your success, is to live in dignity where you're worthy of respect. And, and that's what the self-improvement movement was all about. Dale Carnegie, when he wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People, it wasn't how to bend people to your will. It was how to be an ethical, dignified person, how to go through life looking for the true secrets to success, which was loving your neighbor, treating people, working hard. And, and, and so it, the, the self-improvement movement is really what we need to bring back. I can be the CEO of my life. My life is the ultimate startup venture. And the only way I'm going to get it done is with the principles of, of, of basic entrepreneurship. It, for a lot of people, it's really, really helpful to be explicitly religious in that quest. But, but it's not necessary and has not been necessary in America traditionally to do that as well. We need a new self-improvement wave, a new movement, a new kind of enlightenment. Okay, so this is a good place to talk about our sponsor this week, which is Untucket. And um, I have to say, I have been brought around on Untucket. Untucket. I was a skeptic at first when I first saw the commercials, but we actually got um, some samples, and I've since bought more with my own money. But because I wasn't a first-time buyer, I was already in their system, I did not get the slash dingo discount, uh, and I was still happy to buy them. Uh, they are remarkably well-made. They're super comfortable. If you're a big and tall guy like I am, you know that when you have an untucked sort of normal kind of Brooks Brothers kind of shirt, when they're untucked, they kind of look like you're um, doing the walk of shame in college or something like that. And these things are made to look and feel like this is the way they're made, untucked. And um, of course, you rip a hole in the space-time continuum if you tuck them in, but just just don't don't do that. But I've turned into a big fan of them. I now have five or six of them. They're particularly great for flying if you have to go someplace and you want to feel comfortable, but you might actually have to show up straight away at something looking presentable. Uh, they're a great sort of casual um, slash dressy thing. So anyway, go to untuckit.com or visit one of Untuckit's 50 stores across the U.S. and Canada. 
Untucket even offers free shipping and returns on all, all orders in the U.S. Use promo code DINGO for 20% off your first purchase. So if you want the perfect fitting shirt, regardless of your shape and size, try the original Untucket shirt. And remember, use promo code DINGO, that's D-I-N-G-O, for 20% off your first purchase. We want to thank Untucket for their sponsorship and support of this podcast, and want to thank you guys um, for helping us out with our advertisers. Um, okay, so changing gears just slightly. Um, as you know, I'm trying more and more to model behavior that I find lacking on the right. And <laughs> I used to do my share of smash mouth stuff and all the rest. And some people won't like le- eating less bacon. No, I, well, actually, I mean, I am eating less bacon because my, I made a deal with my daughter that she doesn't want to eat any more pork in the house. Um, she keeping kosher? No, just, she has a ethical thing about pigs because she thinks they're really smart. And that's why I don't eat cats. Um, dogs. <laughs> <laughs> um and, uh, and, but I made a deal with her is that I will stop eating pork for a while if she agrees to suspend her anti-pork position when we go to Spain in a couple of weeks because we can't go to Spain and not eat pork. Yeah, um, yeah. But that's a different issue. Um, uh, so <laughs> pork I, is actually a vegetable in Spain. <laughs> You'll feel good about that. Um, uh, but you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book the way I did and I talked about gratitude and all of these things at the end, The reason, one of the reasons why I'm starting this thing with Hayes is that and this has been a mantra of mine for a while now about the stuff about conservatives are lost sight of persuasion. Right. And persuasion is really, really important. But is it just to push back on this touchy-feely love your neighbor stuff? Isn't there some role for ridicule? Mm-hmm. I mean, do, must I nod politely at everybody as they work through why we need a Green New Deal? Um, why we need to get rid of all the cows? You know, I, right. isn't, isn't there a role at some level – for holding up really bad ideas and say, you know, this is ridiculous? Yeah. Or, or do I have to, like, say, oh, I, fe- I, I share with you, you your desire to fight climate change and I, too, want a sense of social solidarity and all the rest. And But I think that Medicare for all is, 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 is a flawed way of doing it. I mean, do I have to do all of that? Yeah. So you touched on it. You talked about ideas. And and the key thing is if you're separating ideas from people, and this is the key thing, there's never a good reason to treat a person with contempt. There's never a good reason to treat a person with ridicule. But a person and his or her ideas are not the same thing. You have to figure out what the right strategy is to go to, to, to do combat with ideas. Because that's what a competition of ideas is all about. And there's no reason in a competition you can't use satire. There's no reason in a competition you can't use ridicule, but never, never for another person because that's wrong and it's self-defeating. It's an exercise in futility unless you're not into persuasion at all. You know, when you hear politicians, it's just the top levels talking about other people, ridiculing other people, saying hurtful things to other people about the, you know, make, making fun of the person as a person as opposed to making fun of ideas that are relatively bad. What you find is that this is a, this is a, a combat based in destruction and, and it's only a base locking exercise as well. So for sure, make fun of the, the Green New Deal, but don't make fun of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as a person because right. she deserves dignity just as much as everybody else does. And you won't win. All you'll do is you'll convince people that she's stupid or evil or, you know, whatever to people who already thought that, which is basically unhelpful and kind of makes you look like a bully. And I know you don't do that. I know you're talking about ideas. So, you know, and, and by the way, you're a satirist. I do a little of it. Well, I, mean, but I'm, I do less look, and less. We're getting better. <laughs> I'm getting better. Yeah. Make amends. Step I, nine. I'm on a self-improvement process. There you go. Yeah. There you um, go. Um, and, and we can all do, look at, look, I, I saw a clip of myself on television from a year or two ago and I was rolling my eyes. I mean, it's like none of us is perfect. Well, what those of us who are blessed with positions in, in public life, we have to say, I can be better. I will be better. I'm dedicated to it. And I'm sorry when I wasn't. Yeah. Well, it, it sort of reminds me, you know, Ramesh always used to say that. Ramesh Panuro. Ramesh the, great, the great Ramesh Panuro. That's right. Uh, colleague at AEI, colleague at National Review. He always used to say, I want to engage with liberals' best ideas, not their worst ideas. He wants to steel man them. And the thing is, I get that. I try that, but every now and then someone says something so stupid and it's such low-hanging fruit that you, you kind of just have to. Yeah, someone says something that's so stupid. Yeah, I, I hear a person who is so stupid. Yeah. And as long as you can – it's not just a question of rhetorically parsing that. It's a question of keeping that really, really clear in your own heart. You know, I love people. 
And I'm not going to compromise that, but I'm also not going to say that something is a good idea when it's not. Because I have enough respect for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, to say, I respect you enough to say I think the idea is really bad for the following reasons and actually kind of hilarious for the following reasons as well. Um, can we make fun of historical figures? Can, I mean, can I, do I really have to like hate Hitler's ideas but not the man? <laughs> this is – it says America in the title of this book, man. <laughs> you decide whether or not all these ideas are working in foreign policy. <laughs> Um, so I listened to, uh, for listeners who don't know, and I don't know why they wouldn't, uh, uh, you have the Arthur Brooks podcast. Yeah, the Arthur Brooks show, which I had to get Saatchi and Saatchi to name that one. Um, and, uh, it is, no offense to Jack Butler, wildly more produced than this podcast. It also has wildly fewer listeners than this podcast. I don't, I don't know that that's true, but, um, we can compare notes, but I listened to the one on loving your work. Yeah. Which I thought was a good one. My I, son Carlos was on that yeah, episode, no, yeah. Yeah, no, that was good. And um, why don't you, I guess we don't have that much more time. Why don't you just sort of talk us through a little bit about your steps about why work is important, yeah. which is something that we've talked about a bunch on here. You've been a big influence on me about this stuff about earned success and feeling needed. And, yeah. And it doesn't matter what aspect of your life you're feeling needed. The import, most important part is feeling needed, right? Which is part It's actually of, being needed. Being needed. Being right? needed, not feeling um, needed. Yeah. But one re- one produces the other, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, being yeah. needed elicits the... But feeling feel. needed doesn't make you, doesn't make you needed. <laughs> right. If, yeah, if, it's vice versa. Right. If, if, right. And if you feel needed, but you're not treated as if you're needed, then that breeds contempt and anger, right? Absolutely can. And that's actually one of the big problems that people have frustration about as parents. You know, when you're, when you're a teenage kid acts as if you're not needed, even though you mean you're paying for everything. Right. That's the reason that parents go, you know, wild with resentment under yeah. the circumstances to, to make your point. But anyway, that's, you're, you're asking something. Yeah. Else. So uh, en- is enough about my problems. With <laughs> father and like teenage a, kids. I have a six, I have a 16 year old girl who has a capacity for eye rolling that you would not believe. She like fall over backwards in her chair from rolling her eyes so hard. It can happen. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's tough at times, but let's talk about just very briefly about, you know, why is work important? Yeah. How do you figure out, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing to just work for money, but it's a really bad thing if you have no source of being needed elsewhere in your yeah. life, right? And how does that fit into your larger argument in the book? There there are four fundamental sources of happiness. Now, actually, there, happiness is a complicated subject. It's about half genetic, a lot of it's circumstantial, but there's four- because some people are just born miserable bastards. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you've got gloomy parents, I mean, you're like- your mother really did make you unhappy, right. <laughs> but quite genetically. So, but there's one part, there's a, somewhere between 10 and 40%, depending on who's measuring it, of your happiness that you can control with a portfolio. So, I mean, this is news that remnant listeners can use. Um, there are four things that you can do every day and you should do every day. These are accounts that you should put a deposit into every day if you want to be a happier person. And that is you should work on your spirituality, your faith, your, the, your sense of the transcendent. This is not, you don't all have to become Catholics, although I, you know, wouldn't, I will sponsor remnant listeners, you know. You'll be kicked out of the union if you didn't yeah. encourage people. Oh yeah, first, and 25% off your initiation fees. <laughs> you call before midnight tonight. Um, faith, family, friends, and work. Those are your four accounts. It's super simple. And it's really easy to figure out what these things are for each person listening to us. If you're not putting in something into an account for the transcendent, for your family life, for your friendships, which is especially important for men who tend to be extremely lonely and bad at friendship technique, mm-hmm. especially as they get older. And the last is work. Uh, you're, 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 you're not getting, you're not putting enough into the accounts to be as happy as you could possibly be. You're not living up to your potential and you have a responsibility to do those things because the world needs you to be a happier person because you will have more love and you will spread more love. The sort of the nuclear fuel rods of this happiness. Okay. The last one is this, this work. What are the characteristics of work? You have to work, do, has work that does two things tangibly. You have to have work where you feel that you are, earning your success. You have to have work where you you can you can see the accomplishment. You can you feel like you're not being given something for nothing. And number 2 where you're serving other people and you understand that. One of the things that I'll often ask AEI scholars is when I read something. And again, AEI scholars have complete academic freedom, but when they ask my opinion, I'll say, "Who are you fighting for, man? Who are you fighting for?" Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. Tell me the person that you're fighting for. 
I want, I want to know, it's a kid, it's a kid who lives in, you know, southern Ohio. I mean, it, it, don't name them necessarily. You don't have to be mawkish or maudlin in the article. But I want to know in your mind's eye who you're fighting for, that who you're actually serving. And if you can't name it, then it's going to be too diffuse and you're not going to be doing the absolute best work. So serve others, earn your success. And you can do that in all different sorts of ways. You know, I was talking to a group of employees at Starbucks, upper management at Starbucks a couple of weeks ago. And I said, you know, one of the things I actually admire about Starbucks a lot is that Starbucks has made uh, low-wage work cool. Mm-hmm. It's amazing, actually. It's to say, you know, we have this tendency to say you know, derisively, talk about burger flippers and yeah. these jobs, these dead-end jobs. And, you know, all work has dignity. And Starbucks has been phenomenal at actually making entry-level jobs cool because it's kind of cool yeah. to work at a Starbucks. And, and I said, that's service to other people. Now, the important thing when you're doing your job, whether you're in accounting or you know sales or you're buying beans in Guatemala, whatever, make sure that you remember the people that you're serving, the people who need your product, who like your product. But, but just as importantly, the people who need the first rung in the employment ladder. And, you know, th- each one of us can do something like that. Each one of us in our work. And it's, it's really super easy for you and me, Jonah, because we work at AEI. And we know, we know that, look, the free enterprise movement, that, that American values, that American leadership, we've lifted 2 billion people out of poverty over the past 30 years, 40 years. And we're going to get the next 2 billion. We know it's like, we're going to fight like crazy to get the next 2 billion people out of poverty with a force of ideas. We, we can see that quite tangibly, but everybody listening to us, everybody should have the dignity of their work to be needed such that they can serve other people and earn their success. Um, okay. Uh, because of some technical issues, we, um, we have to, we went long and have to wrap up sooner than I would like. We could talk about a lot of this stuff all day long. Just very briefly, what do you say? Buy the book, buy the book, buy the book oh, yeah, over no, and over again, kind of a mantra. This is like my new meditation app. Love your enemies. Buy the book. Um, so in a mellifluous voice, uh, I, I don't do euphony very well. Um, <laughs> uh, but, um, so you've had a, an odd career. I think that's yeah, fair to say, right? It's fair to say. Started out as a French horn player. You went to, uh, you did a mail order college degree and then, had some sort of strange epiphany that you wanted to do math and went and got a PhD from Rand, right? Mm-hmm. Rand um, Rand school. Yep. Yep. And then you went off and taught social science and econometrics and whatever, and studied happiness and philanthropy and all that and came to AI. You've been here for 10 years and now you're going to do what? Hmm. I'm going back to academia. Um, I'm going to teach at Harvard. Um, and I teach at the Harvard Kennedy School and the Harvard Business School, uh, classes on leadership and happiness. Uh, that will, it's a ph- phenomenal platform to be able to do a lot of creative work besides teaching as well. So I'm working on the idea of a television show on the pursuit of happiness, uh-huh. uh, kind of an experiential show on the pursuit of happiness. I, I have a, a, a newspaper column in the Washington Post that I'll be increasing the frequency of that. I'm, I'm talking about book projects, uh, one about how to be happy after the age of 50. I know you just turned 50. Happy birthday, Jonah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, what, 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 are the, what are the steps, the inventory turns you need to make to actually ensure that you're going to be as happy as you could possibly be, knowing that after 75, half of the population tends to get happier and half of the population tends to get unhappier? How can you be on the top curve as opposed to the bottom curve? Um, I'm working on a couple of different projects with the Dalai Lama of, you know, working on a project on compassionate leadership and then, and then seeing, you know, I mean, who knows, maybe two months after I, you know, into my tenure at Harvard, I'll get the shakes because I'm not raising money and I feel like I have to go, you know, do, do that some more, but a lot of really, really creative work I have to say. And I'm, I'm excited to do it. And then staying, of course, involved with AEI for the rest of my life as a donor and as, you know, somebody who can work on strategy and, and, and help you guys and, and just admire you guys. I know an enterprise that you could help raise money for, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, I personally want to see some sort of like uh buddy true crime cop movie with you and the Dalai Lama. Yeah. Just busting bad guys and um you know kicking ass and taking names uh with with self improvement and love to go around. Um anyway, Arthur You see him driving. It's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, he's peeling out, doing these one eighties, it's unbelievable. Uh I look I know your buddies with, with the Dalai Lama and he's he's a big hitter. But I just want to say thank you for bringing me back to AI. Yeah. Thank you for all you've done for us. And I hope we'll have you back on when you're just a civilian. Just a civilian as a professor at Harvard. Jonah, thank you for the work that you're doing. I think a lot of our listeners know you as a pundit and, you know, the G file, which I've been subscribing to since I was an assistant professor. No, since oh. I was a graduate student. Dear God. Yeah, yeah. 
and uh, and and know you as a really funny guy, but you're an integral part of our community. You're rebuilding conservatism along the principle. Look, you actually are more of a of a, a, a conservative. You've read more of the literature. You have the the better breeding than I do in this intellectual <laughs> movement. And and let me tell you, there's nobody better to have at the helm of the new the new right than Jonah Goldberg. Well. Thank you, Arthur. I, I wish more people agreed with you instead of just the remnant, but we're working on it. <laughs> hey, the remnant's going to be the 93% next. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Arthur. Thanks, Jonah. Okay, so Arthur has left the studio, uh, and he won't leave the building for real until, I guess, June when he steps down as president, which makes me sad, although um, our incoming fearless leader, Robert Doerr, is a great guy. And uh, what would you think of all that? You know what? It's making me think of Excalibur, and I'll tell you why. Okay. Tell me why. <laughs> um, so Excalibur is one of the there, – there have actually been – I've been reading you I – re, I was reading you well before – I started working for you, and there there's actually a pretty long list of movies that I sought out because you referenced them. I think uh -huh. They Live was one of them, but Excalibur was definitely one. And uh, at the end of Excalibur is when King Arthur mm -hmm. uh -huh. is has been uh, – he's killed his son, but he is still – he has been stabbed as well, but he's not dead. He, he's spirited off to, I think, Avalon, and then in Arthurian legend, he actually – is going to return someday. Uh -huh. But the the end of Excalibur, which I think is my favorite part, is they have the Wagner's Siegfried funeral march playing as the sun sets and as he's spirited off in, uh, onto the sea. And it's very it's very dramatic and, also, and very, it's a very good moment. And I feel like this is that moment for this podcast because Arthur Brooks appeared on an episode very early on in this show. Indeed he did. And now here he is appearing for the last time as our king. That's right. And... Uh, Going off into a glorious sunset of this book that uh, he has written, which, if if the right people read it, could could change the way that our contempt laden politics operate. Um, I'm perhaps uh, I don't know if I'm as optimistic as he is. I don't know if anyone is as optimistic yeah, as no, he is, just generally point. speaking. Right. Um, but I, I I mean I hope he's right. Uh, it'd be better for our country in the long term if he is right and if people listen to what he wrote in the book. So, but he he off he is on his way out. But he may like an Arthurian legend, he may return to this podcast in a in a different form at some time in the future. Some other guys. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, me, I've been Arthur this whole time. <laughs> um uh I'm not as I'm not 100% convinced that his optimism will be born out or can be born out, but um, part of me wants to say, so what, right? I mean, the whole point about doing the right thing isn't that you're going to make society perfect, but that doing the right thing is its own reward. And if you can just move the, you know, if you can move the giant tanker one or two degrees on the ocean, eventually it will start to turn around. And I try to do less and less of that kind of political argument as ridicule stuff, but no one who's been reading me closely would argue that I've abandoned it entirely. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, so I try to save it for when it's truly deserved, I should say. And that when um, when you call – it seems to me, and I probably should have asked him about this, you know, uh, when someone is a jerk, I mean truly a jerk, holding them up for ridicule for their jerkiness, I am not 100% convinced is always a bad tactic. But I do think he's absolutely right that, you know, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, the importance of story, that story is is, is sort of the antidote to identity. Mm -hmm. And and I say this in speeches all the time, is that politics needs to figure out how to tell stories again. Ronald Reagan very rarely used Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal in his speeches. Instead, he told stories. And our brains are wired, um, have much more wiring for understanding things through stories than we do through abstractions and principles. And as I'll often tell audiences, virtually every important lesson of your entire life has a story behind it. Um, the Bible is a lot of different things, but at its core is it's, and its surface is it's a bunch of stories. 
Um, and stories are hugely, hugely important. And that was one of the things that Ronald Reagan did because he cared about persuading people. There's this great story, see, where – what's his name? Um, George Schultz tells about when he went to go see Reagan in the first Reagan administration to get his feedback on a speech. He said, you know, this is a really important speech. I want to know what you thought about it and blah, 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 blah. And Reagan says, oh, it's a good speech. It's a good speech. It's not a speech I would give, but it's a good speech. And he says, well, what do you mean it's not the speech you would give? And Reagan says, takes out his big felt-tip pen and says, okay, see what you do here? He says, you know, point one, point two, point three. I would say point one, story. Point two, story. Point three, story. And part of the point of that is that the way we get our principles most best absorbed into our brains is by putting them into the context of a story because we think narratively. And um, when we reduce everything to abstract principles, uh, we make them much less sticky. Um, and I think that's something that the right has really lost in, to a large extent. Um, I think one of the reasons why we got Trump is because conservatives on the you know, sort of particularly in the primary process, stopped telling stories that brought people over and instead rattled on about purity um, that wasn't aimed to persuade people, save to say that I am the most pure and anybody who disagrees with me or us is bad. And that led to a lot of the politics of contempt that Arthur is talking about. Um, but Arthur, I would say, is probably the best guy out there at blending a serious understanding of the, what I consider mostly witchcraft of like the sort of um, uh, neuroscience stuff and the social science and the sort of, you know, uh, the statistical stuff with a deeply grounded moral and religious framework, which I was trying to tease out of him. And you could tell he kind of dodged the question by talking about how great AI is. <laughs> um, but that's fine. That's part of his job. Also, I don't think people realize just what an insanely good dresser Arthur is. He probably is uh, the most sartorially accomplished person on the American right since we used to have a bunch of people who wore capes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, he had an orange watch on. Yes, and it was it was large. Mm -hmm. It was kind of hypnotizing. Um, I did want to talk to him about Gandhi because when he was talking about all these like tactics about nonviolence and loving your enemies and all that kind of stuff, as you know, I have a deep and abiding grievance about Gandhi and how his nonviolence was not, in fact, a first order principle, but was instead a, a much more tactical view because he understood that it would work on the British, but he never tried to talk, tell Hitler to be nonviolent. He just wanted to tell people who had rightly formed consciences to be nonviolent. Um, yes, I remember in, in high school, I we in a class I took, we watched Gandhi. And in the discussion afterward, I said exactly that, that this, this whole nonviolence thing seems like it would have worked on the British, but not so well on the Nazis at the, t at the time. So when you then, when I read Tunic Clichés a few years later and saw that in there, I was like, oh, yes, vindicated <laughs> by someone who wrote a book. Yeah, well, that was also, I mean, you were really vindicated by Orwell, who wrote about it at length, and who I quote in the in that book, um, that, that underappreciated book. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, uh, he pointed out, he's like, look, if there's a Gandhi in the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany right now, we have no idea who they are because they've been carted off in the middle of the night and killed along with their families, you know? And when, you know, Gandhi after World War II, you know, so this is like two or three years after the, the full extent of the Holocaust was actually known, um, he was asked about his position because, you know, his advice to the British was to practice nonviolence in the face of Nazi aggression. He said, give up your homes, give up your beautiful island, but don't abandon your principles. Um, as if somehow the British didn't have the principle of fighting you know, foreign invaders or something. <laughs> and his advice to the Jews of Germany was because partly because he was against uh, the formation of Israel, uh, he said that real courage would have been for the the Jews to willingly go to the gas chambers and die on the principle of nine violence, and that would be real courage. And um, it's not just because my last name is Goldberg that I don't find this the most efficacious moral or public policy approach to things. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, it would have been fun to talk about that. All right. So what else do we have to uh, get through? Any any action items? No. Okay. So if that's the case, uh, the, the, the Twitter feed, you know, for uh, this podcast has been, has been dying down a little bit. 
Um, just in terms of, I, I, you know, I search for at Jonah Remnant, our Twitter handle every now and then. And I'm not saying the robot who runs the actual handle has died down. I, I would have remedies for that. I'm talking about what people are tweeting about the podcast, the frequency of that is low. Oh, it's because people, people are tweeting at me now instead. That's the problem. Oh, they're tweeting at Jack Butler? Yeah, that's oh. what's happening. People have, have sort of started. Because they think you're the, the Remnant podcast bot? Well, they think that I'm responsible for the production of the show. But, okay. <laughs> um, but that's what's happening, I've noticed. Interesting. Um, they should stop that. Yeah, well, I mean, I could fix this by making the robot get in fights with the Subbeacon world again if, I, if, if it were, if you deemed it appropriate. It's, it's not a first order priority. As, as, as listeners might guess, uh, we have a lot of other stuff on our plates these days. So, uh, <laughs> that's fine. Um, but please keep on, you know, tweeting about it. Word of mouth is really, really important. And this podcast for the foreseeable future is going to be, um, more and more important to me, just given the transitions that are going on with me professionally. Uh, and so and it's not going anywhere. And it's not going anywhere. Um, so your support is really appreciated. And, uh, your proselytizing for it is really appreciated. And you guys really should buy Arthur Brooks's new book, Love Your Enemies. Even if, you know, you're not as much of a New Testament guy as Arthur is and you want your politics full of more smiting and wrath, um, it will still help you find all sorts of things about your life and improve things in your life beyond just politics. So thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast and I am not a crook. Okay, we're at two o'clock. Okay, I could do this. Well, just buy. I know you can cut this out, so it's fine. You, know, um, you, want, you want another five? Make less work for myself. I understand. Yeah, you got another five, another five or something. But this is this is how you feel needed. Just can you? <laughs>